Welcome to North Coast Church. Thank you so much for joining us for this week's message. Chris Brown is back in the saddle as he takes us through the book of John. We're looking forward to today's message. To prepare for it, we encourage you, go to our website, download the message notes, or you can use our mobile app. We also encourage you, if you'd like to be able to give towards the ministries of North Coast Church, you can do so utilizing our mobile app, or you can give online. Now let's join Pastor Chris Brown for today's message. Absolutely everything about this night had them on edge. From the time, the place, the setting, the crowds that were around him, the anticipation, the events of the last few days, and now everything's gone into sort of cloak and dagger mode. Everything has this heightened sense of alertness and, uh, and the tension. Even amongst the 13 of them, you, you could like cut it like a knife in the room. And now all of a sudden he starts speaking in this cloak and dagger language. I need two of you. I need two of you to get inside the enemy's headquarters. I need you to go to the city gate. I need you to look for a jar of water being carried into the city, but it'll be carried by a man. And there's these strange looks around the circle. I mean, I'm, I'm not trying to be sexist at all. I'm just trying to tell you about first century culture and how it worked. The women went outside the city with the water jugs and got water and brought it back into their homes. Not the men, but no, I've got a guy on the inside and this is how you're going to know who he is. Follow him. Don't make contact, just follow him to a house. When he gets to his house, just tell him the master wants to know if the room is ready and he'll take care of the rest. And with that, two of them leave the 12. With that, two of them take their cloaks, pull it down over their eyebrows, keep their faces down to the dirt, which will eventually become cobblestone as it gets closer to the large city walls. And they'll stand with their backs up against the huge bricks by the gate and just watch water jar, water jar, water jar, water jar. You have to understand the capital Jerusalem has swelled 20 times its normal population at this time. Every great Jewish Hebrew family wants to celebrate the Passover, one of the greatest of their four celebrations on the calendar inside Jerusalem, or at least outside the walls. People have made pilgrimages that started days ago with all the preparations to show up at this spot. Water jar woman, water jar woman. Everyone in the city can feel this as well. Everyone in the city knows that amongst all their activity and amongst the crowds that are starting to come together, more and more Roman legions, guards by groups of dozens now are starting to show up, hundreds camped outside the city. This entire thing has become like a powder keg, just, just waiting for a spark to hit it. And everyone knows. 1,400 years ago, your God, the one true creator God, saved your people from the greatest empire in the known world at that time, Egypt. Over 1,400 years ago, your God brought plagues in and destroyed the armies of Pharaoh to bring his people back home. And you're sick and tired today of the Roman rule. You're sick and tired today of the politics. You want that God to show up once again. And this is the festival. This is the feast that celebrates that. And for the last three years, it seems like you may have found your hero. In the last three years, there's one who walks on water. There's ones that's able to heal people of leprous diseases, raised from the dead. There's one that seems to have the power in the words of God. So yes, when he came into the city a few days ago, the place went into an uproar. The screams and chants in unison of save now, come with power, set up a kingdom. No wonder at the end of this Palm Sunday, Jesus had to weep for the city. You don't know the type of God you have. I'm not here to take care of your politics. 
I'm here to break your heart and have you surrender to me. And the last few days has been building in the temple courts. They've been trying to trick him. They've been trying to trap him. They've been trying to talk about taxes and politics. They've been trying to talk about laws and the judicial system. They've tried to talk about the Old Testament, the do's and the don'ts. And yet Jesus has maneuvered his way out of every single one. So by now the place is split. Some think he may be the son of God. The others hate him. The others don't like that he won't work for them. And the ruling parties, they've all come together and realize they've got to get rid of this guy. So two stand by the city gate, water jug woman, water jug woman, until they see him with the large jar on his shoulders and maybe on his head. The rest of the crowd would look at him too, kind of odd. A man carrying a water jar in a crowd this size? And if they'd slip in, sandal to sandal, shoulder to shoulders, the crowd gets thick inside the city walls, keeping an eye on that water jug. It's down the main thoroughfare, about three or four blocks, and then a sharp right. The more you twist and turn inside the cavernous city, the smaller and smaller the roadways get. In fact, we would call them purely walkways, back alleys, that the, the heat of the Middle Eastern sun is baking everything inside these rock walls. The stench of human body odor is strong in your nostrils. And when three turns away, he drops and puts the jar next to the house. The disciples realize it's their turn to speak. <clears throat> the master wants to know if the room is, and I don't even know if they had time to finish their sentence before there's a hush silence. Of shh. A quick nervous glance up and down the street. Did anybody hear those words? You see, the owner of this house knows what's at risk. When your religious leaders have put a price on a man's head and you go against them, you see, just by offering his upper room, just by having a place where Jesus and his disciples can have dinner, he's an alibi. His wife, his children, it's their lives at stake. Did anybody hear what these two guys just said? And when it's obvious the crowd out in the street and alleyway and up and down have their own agendas in mind, he nods his head to the left. They go to the side stairs and there and making their way up another door is open. It's a large room completely furnished. This is a, boy, this is quite a house inside the city. Not only is a two-story house a little out of place in the first century, but a two-story house that has an enclosed upstairs, an enclosed upstairs that can house a dinner party for 13 this is a house of luxury. You know exactly what the conversation's like. The owner's gonna tell them, I've tried to get almost everything ready. There's still some stuff you have to do. But you know he promised you will have absolute solitude here. No one will know. No one will know you're here. And with that, he leaves. And with that, the two disciples prepare for this last supper until under the coming of nightfall, the rest of the disciples come in. We're not told exactly how they enter the house, but we know by the events that we just read last week and we're going to pick up this week. What's at stake? Every disciple, whether they came in two or three at a time, would have opened the door, would have immediately looked to their left, looked at the table, looked at their left, and gone to the table. Every disciple would have opened the door, looked to their left, looked at the table, looked to their left, and gone to the table. You see, to understand this famous night, to understand these last words, to understand these last examples, to understand more words written in red together than any place else in scripture, the famous last words, desires, actions of Jesus on the night that he was betrayed, we've got to go back inside that room. Our next, I don't know, five chapters, our next maybe 10 weeks 
are going to be spent taking word for word what Jesus wanted his followers to hear and understand on that last night. The most important words he will reserve for that night for this setting. Unfortunately, you and I have this dinner party in mind because the great Da Vinci has painted us one. You know this picture, the Last Supper, where you've got Jesus in the middle. Sometimes he has a golden plate around his head. Not quite sure about that. All these disciples are stretched out. It makes for an amazing painting. It's a masterpiece where you can get the face and facial expressions of every disciple. But none of us have ever gone to a dinner like this. None of us have ever hosted a dinner like this. I, we do a lot of entertaining at our house. We've never had a long table and had everyone just facing one direction. It's a lousy seating arrangement. You can't talk to anybody more than two people away from you. You gotta yell down there, hey Jim, you doing good? You need anything? And Jim can't even hear me because there's three conversations between me and Jim. But Da Vinci did a marvelous job painting it. But Da Vinci painted this 1500 years after the Last Supper happened. I think we gotta understand that too. He wasn't invited to the Last Supper. They didn't sit there and pose. This is gonna be a big night. You're gonna to wanna to capture this. 1,500 years later, he comes up with the Last Supper. What we know is that the entire Greek and Roman world had adopted a, a seating arrangement, a triclinium. It, it looked more like this. It's three tables with an opening in the middle so all of your food and service can come in and out easily without someone reaching over you. What we know is that they were reclining. That's not usual for the Hebrew world. You would sit in chairs and sit at a table. But for very special events, for social events, for great celebrations, you would have this three-table triclinium set up. You would have these couches and cushions that were angled that everyone would lean against their right elbow or, or left elbow and left arm. You would eat with your right the, the, the painter of this has Jesus in the middle, but this is always where the host would sit, on this left table. The most important people to him would be to his immediate left and his immediate right. Across from here would be your most important guest. They would be seated here. Your second most important row of guests would be seated here. And this is how the entire dinner would have happened in that upper room. This is why when we're about to read, those that are leaning up against each other, and with this in mind, we have to understand why every disciple looked to the left of the door and they walked in. You see, there's a custom when you're reclining at the table. There's a custom when you're leaning on your side and eating. There's a custom because of the opulence of the homes, the respect for the host, and because of seating like this, you will wash your feet. It has to be done. You, you walk in open-toed shoes, you walk on the open roads, you have not only the muck and mire, but understand the transportation of the day. You have what, donkeys, horses, you have cattle, you have sheep coming in and out of the city to be slaughtered in the temple courts. Understand their lack of understanding about uh, microbiology. Human feces waste was captured in a bowl and thrown outside in the streets. You literally have crap all over your feet after you're done walking on these streets. It is pounded down human and animal waste. It is dung that's on the streets. So when you enter a house, especially a house inside the city, especially a house that has two floors, especially a house that has an entire enclosed second floor, you do not dare dishonor the owner of that house by bringing that in. You will stop at the door. The lowest of all slaves will be at the door. It is your forgive my words, but to make perfect sense of it, the crap boy is there. That's his job. 
He will wash that from your feet, from between, between your toes, from about your lower calf all the way down to your ankles. And then you're ready to walk into a home like this. And then you're ready to recline at the table because your feet are gonna be pushing up against his robe and his feet are gonna be next to him and his feet next to him. You see where I'm eating, the foot of the guy next to me is gonna be behind me. My feet are gonna be over here. You can't have that on your feet. When you come to a triclinium table, when you come to a supper of this magnitude. And, and this is why the verses of last week still have to be ringing into our head. After the evening meal had been served, the meal had already been started. The disciples are already eating. Jesus got up, would have been in the seating area, took off his outer cloak, and walk to the door. And there, as we saw last week, he picked up the pitcher of the water and the towel and the crap boy apron. And as he turns back to the table, you could have heard a pin drop. Every disciple thinking the exact same thing. Don't give it to me. Don't give it to me. Don't make me do it. Don't make me number 12. Don't make me number 12. and the shock in the room. This, the spine tingling, hair on the back of your neck standing up when you realize the Son of God puts his knees on the floor and he starts untying laces and removing sandals. And Jesus made himself number 13. It's why, as we saw last week, he started to wash the feet in silence. No one can say a word. No one can speak. Until he gets to Peter. Huh. We pick up today's teaching at that moment. We pick up today's teaching where Larry left off showing us that example last week. Me just wanted to set the scene in our hearts and our minds, taking time right now, 12 minutes to just set the scene because we're gonna be camping in this scene for the next, I don't know what it is, six, eight, 10 weeks to know what is happening in this moment and why. Because if you and I can just capture this scene, if you and I can just take in what is happening in this room and what it means for us, I think we're done. I think we're good. Jesus will retain his greatest example, his greatest teaching, his greatest encouragement, and his greatest commands for this last night, famous last words. If there is one scene in the entire Bible, I could go back and revisit. If there's one scene in the entire Bible that I can take and just own, it would be this upper room. Because I truly believe he leaves his followers with everything they need to know about what it does mean to follow him. <laughs> what does it mean to walk with him? And what does it mean to be with him now and forever? So first thing I want you to write down is from last week's message, two earth-shattering moments. You saw the first last week. Jesus makes himself the lowest servant in a room full of his servants. Jesus makes himself the slave. Jesus picks up what would have been by the door and walks to the table. And as every disciple says, don't make me do it. Don't make me wash feet. Don't make me wash feet. Jesus is the one that kneels and washes feet. I wondered so many times 
This is the night they're about to go to the garden after this long teaching. This is the night that they're all gonna run from him. This is the night Judas is gonna be, betray him. This is the night he'll be taken to a mock trial and somewhere in the dead of night and in the darkness of the morning hours, he will be beaten, his back will be flayed open with whips, he will be bludgeoned beyond recognition, he will have a crown pushed down on his head and by the next day, his arms are gonna be tied to a cross, his wrists are gonna be pierced, his ankles will be pinned, pinned to the wood. And I often wondered if the first drop of blood that Jesus will shed in this ordeal was sitting at that table. I wonder if he was biting his lip, watching everyone come in, knowing the U-shaped table, knowing where you sit has a place of honor to it or a place of dishonor, knowing every disciple has a choice. He looked down, there's the water basin, there's the towel. I know what I'm supposed to do, but there's no one here to wash my feet. And there's the table, there's the towel, there's the table. I gotta get my seat at the table. The first couple spots have already been taken. And I wonder if the first drops of blood that night was Jesus biting his lip, watching every disciple fail their final exam. Someone, please pick up the towel. Someone tell me these last three years haven't been in vain. All my teaching on the way to Jerusalem about the first has to be last, that the greatest has to be servant of all. And no one picks up the towel. So Jesus makes himself the lowest servant in a room full of those that have all vowed to serve him. But they won't serve each other because the moment you pick up the towel, Everyone else sticks their foot in your face. The moment you wash your feet, you become the foot washer. The moment you wash your crap, you become the crap boy and everyone will lift a foot and put it in front of you. Oh, they're all willing to wash Jesus's feet, but the moment they wash Jesus's feet, they have to move their way around the table. <laughs> can, I just, can I just encourage you if you didn't catch it last week, Larry did a phenomenal job of taking the first six, seven minutes, reading the story, and then just going, here's how we have to love people. Here's how we love those that love us. Here's how we love those that don't love us. Here's how we have to love people. Can I just remind you the importance of this because the words Jesus is about to place on this, that we will never be more like Jesus than when we are serving, and we will never be further from him than when we are expecting to be served. We will never be more like Jesus than when we are serving. You wanna be Christ-like, you serve people in your life. You wanna be Christ-like, you walk into every room and not say, here I am, but you walk into every room and say, where are you? Where are the people that need to be served? You wanna be Christ-like, if there's two pieces, always take the smallest. If there's a line, take the longest. If there's the hardest job, it's got your name on it. You wanna be Christ-like, you look at the people in your life as people that you need to serve, not those that need to serve you. Because we will never, ever be more unlike, more anti-Christ than when we are expecting to be served. By the way, Christian, this is the difference between those that say, man, I'm a believer, I'm a follower, I have head knowledge, I know it, and those that are living in blessing, those that are living in Mercurios, blessing, happiness. You see in our chapter 13 study, read the very last words of what Jesus told his disciples. Let's go back to verse 12. After he had done this incredible act in John 13, 12, he says, when he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you? He asked them. And look at their answer. Crickets. I wish I could make a cricket noise. I can't. Crickets. 
They don't understand what he's done. We have no idea. The son of God just became the lowest in the room. We have no clue what you've just done. See, you call me teacher and Lord. Oh, and rightly so. That is who I am. Now that I, your Lord and your teacher, have washed your feet, you should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Oh, I'm gonna tell you the truth. No servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now get this. Larry had you circle it last week. Highlight, underline. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. It's not knowing I'm supposed to love others. It's not knowing I'm supposed to serve others. It's not knowing I'm supposed to make myself the least if I want to be the greatest. It's not knowing I'm supposed to be last if I want to make myself first. It's not knowing that. You will be blessed if you can do them. This is the difference in the Christian of life, of those disciples that go, oh, I love God, I know God, and it's like, but where's the spirit in your life? Where do you sense the Holy Spirit, the very life of Christ in you? You wanna be a Christian that starts to walk with the Holy Spirit, to walk in with the life of Christ in you? Our next three chapters are gonna flesh this, spirit it out in our life in amazing ways. But can I just tell you right now, apply this. You will never be closer to the Holy Spirit than when you are serving. And you will never be further from the Holy Spirit than when you are expecting to be served. And yet, what is most of our life like? I wanna be served. I wanna be respected. In fact, I demand to be respected. I get all bent out of shape if I'm disrespected. Not that someone comes up and slaps me in the face. Oh, no, 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 no. That's just throw down time. I'm just talking about cutting me off in traffic, disrespecting. <laughs> we all have this demand of self to put self first. And Jesus goes, okay, be number one. Be first, be greatest. I'm just gonna give you a new definition of first and greatest. You become last. You become servant of all. Get the picture. Jesus says, now listen, do you understand what I've done? And they're like, we don't, we don't. He goes, you call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, that's who I am. I have the titles in the room, I have the position in the room, I have the power in the room, and I have the authority in the room. And I use it to serve. Guys, this shouldn't shock you. I've been doing it the last three years. Look at the life of Jesus constantly, constantly interrupted, constantly using every interruption to serve. I've come to serve. So if you have a God that has come to serve and you're expecting in your life to be served, then you think you're greater than your master. I'm asking you to go and serve others. You wanna get your marriage back on track? You serve her. She disrespects the way she, I don't ask what she does, you serve her. You serve her, not because she deserves it, not because she earns it, not because she respects you, because you are a man of God and you're tired of believing it and you wanna start acting like it, you serve her. You wanna give God your marriage and get control of it? You serve him, you serve him. Not because of the way he loves you, not because of the way he cherishes you, not because of the way he builds you up, that's laughable. You serve him because you're a woman of God tired of just knowing it and you wanna start walking the spirit. You start serving. 
well, Chris, you don't know my marriage. You don't know. He serves Judas. He washes Judas's feet. And as we're about to turn the page, he offers him a whole lot more. You want to get your workplace back and find God in your workplace? You serve those you work with, especially those who may be under you. Well, Chris, I mean, that's great. You work at a church. I'm sure you can walk in and serve people and you get brownie points. I'm going to get on the job site and I got to drop some F-bombs to get that job site in place or get some guys working and hammering. Really? You think Jesus couldn't be a carpenter? Oh, wait a second, he was. You think Jesus had to motivate with F-bombs? Guys, we're taking an easy way out. We're taking a worldly way out. When we go, well, because I'm a cop, I have to use language. Because I'm a Marine, I have to use language. Oh, no, we don't. No, we don't. Well, if I start serving people, I'm going to be seen as a pansy. Maybe. My bet is you're going to become one of the most popular people around. People love to be served. People love to be served. Well, what if they take advantage of me? Well, then you may be more Christ-like than you think. Whatever your power, whatever your position, whatever your title, you want to be Christ-like in it? Serve. You want to be anti-Christ? Expect to be served. I'll tell you, it's very easy. I can look at my marriage and go, where are the times that Amy and I get sideways? Oh, I know where we get sideways. When she forgets that I'm the master and she disrespects me. Gosh, even when I say it out loud like that, for some reason it doesn't sound right. But I know that's the heart case. Every time. Where would we ever get sideways? Well, those few times where I feel like Amy's just disrespected me and forgot that I'm the master. Well, how did I let my head get in that position? I became, I became very Chris-like. I forgot there's supposed to be a T at the end of that. I expected to be served. And when she doesn't serve me, respect me, the way I expect as a master, I get bent out of shape. What do you call that, Chris? Sin. That's just my sin nature. Where's your marriage the best? Man, when I'm serving her and when I got a wife that's serving me, now let me tell you straight up, this is no shock or surprise, 98% of the success of our marriage is due to Amy relying on the Holy Spirit and having to live with a clown like me. But I tell you what that's done. That's driven so much West Texas thick-headed hard-heartedness out of me because when she serves me the way she does, all I want to do is try to outserve her. Can you imagine a relationship where you have two people trying to outserve each other? I tell you what you'd have. You'd have a home that's a place that you try to run to, not from. You got kids? Try to serve them. You got a two, three, four, or five-year-old? I guarantee you, you're serving them right now. You got a workplace? You got a relationship out of whack? Why don't you bring the Holy Spirit into it? Well, how do I bring the Holy Spirit into it? You start serving, because you will never be closer to the Spirit of God than when you're serving. And you will never be further from the spirit, the character, the calling of Jesus than when you're expecting to be served. Now that you know this, you will be blessed. You will find happiness if and only if you can do it. You can apply it. (laughs) We've loved in Christian circles calling this, guys, we're going to be servant leaders. We've just got to be servant leaders. But do you see even what we've done with that? We've made serving an adjective to my leadership. I love being known as a servant leader. Why? Because then you know I'm the leader. Jesus said this isn't an adjective, it's a noun. I don't want this to be an adjective. I want this to be who you are. Be the servant, period. 
And you will be blessed if you can do this. Why? Because you will find a purpose and calling of Christ in your life and you will find yourself more closer, more available used by the Holy Spirit than ever before in your life. You may just find the kingdom of God on earth long before we get to call it heaven. Is it open to everybody? Watch. Verse 18. I'm not referring to all of you. I know those I have chosen, but this is to fulfill the scripture. He who shares my bread has lifted up his heel against me. I'm telling you now before it happens, so that, circle, highlight, underline, listen to why I'm telling you this. When it does happen, you will believe that I am he, or you will believe that I am that I am. I tell you the truth. Whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me, and whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. What? Just as Jesus goes, look, this is how you serve, how you love others, how you serve others. It's not the secret, it's wide open. It's the plain statement of Jesus of how you get the joy in your life, the blessing in your life, the happiness in your life, the Holy Spirit in your life. That's for all of you. However, not all of you in this room because I know exactly who I've called. I know exactly what is going on. And I know exactly what's in that head and one that's in that heart of yours. In fact, it's one that shares this dinner with me. He quotes the Psalms right here, 41 verse nine. It's one that shares dinner with me that's gonna turn on me. It's the ultimate act of betrayal, to sit at my table, to sit at my hosting, to sit and eat my bread and to turn and stab me in the back. Now I'm telling you this so that when it happens, you may truly know that I am the Christ that I am the son of God. And I'm telling you now before it happens. Look at verse 20. I tell you the truth. Whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me. And whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. See, after he had said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit. And then he testified. I tell you the truth. One of you is going to, to betray me. The second earth shattering moment that happens, not just that the son of God gives this incredible example, the true character and nurture of who he is. He's a serving Messiah. He's a serving God. He's come to wash us clean. He's come to make us clean. He's come to give us forgiveness. Remember when he's washing the feet of the disciples and he gets to Peter? And last week, Peter goes, Lord, Lord, you're not gonna wash my feet. And he goes, unless I wash your feet, you have no part of me. And Peter goes, then wash my whole body as well. Even in surrendering, Peter's trying to dictate what Jesus does, how he serves him and what he can and can't do. And Jesus has that statement. You don't need a bath. You're already clean because what I've done to you and yet not all of you. He knows Judas is in the room. He knows Judas hasn't been cleansed. He knows Judas isn't forgiven. He knows Judas has this deep-seated, his own pride, his own agenda in his heart. And right now he calls it out. And this is that second earth-shattering statement in that moment. Jesus announces that his betrayer is in the room. Okay, you and I have got to put on a different hat for this. You and I have got to erase 2,000 years of knowledge, 2,000 years of history. You and I have to erase the entire rest of the New Testament to truly understand what's happening in this room. Because you and I read this and go, oh yeah, Judas is there. We know about this guy. But to understand in the time it happened, for the 12 to be in the room, 
for them to know outside there's a price on Jesus' head. The secrecy of even coming into the city. Two of them coming in by their own just to get the room ready. What the owner of the house had to put on line just to harbor these fugitives upstairs, knowing that if anyone found out his house was being used, it would be certain death to his wife and his children. And going through all of that, now Jesus goes, by the way, my betrayer is in this room. The shock that that statement brings to the room. And in fact, I put there under setting the scene, I put Matthew chapter 26, Mark chapter 14, Luke chapter 22. I wrote the Psalm there that Jesus is referring to because in every one of the Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, as they record this, every disciple is shocked. In fact, the disciples in Matthew and Mark start asking, is it me? Is it me? Not that they don't know if there's some evil betrayal they have, but they're wondering, accidentally, am I giving you up somehow? Am I gonna make a mistake? Am I gonna cause a blunder here? Because they can't fathom there's a treacherous plot in the room. This is us. We've been together three years. Three years we've left family, friends, home to be together. Three years we've slept on the roadside or we've shared people's houses every night. Three years we've shared every meal together. Three years we've grown and walked together. It didn't dawn on them that it could be somebody around this table. In fact, when he said it, they said, well, it's gotta be me because there's no way it could be them. See, you and I have 2,000 years of history to look back on Judas and realize, oh yeah, it's that dude as if he walked around with a long pointy nose and beady little eyes and this big tail that came out from under his toga and it was like, oh, that's Judas. No, he's the guy that controlled their money. He was their CFO. He was the guy in charge of the purse. He was the most trusted in the group. When Jesus says my betrayer is here with us, they didn't all go, Judas. Just think about it. How many people do you know named Mark? How many people you know named Matthew? How many people you know named Paul, Luke, John? How many Judases do you know? That name just dropped off the face of the earth 2,000 years ago. I mean, we've got this understanding of Judas and we don't have names in a church our size, there may be a Judas. I apologize. Great to have Judas. You have nothing to do with him. You're fine. Keep your name. It's great. We'll call you Jude. And it's 2,000 years ago because of what he did has so changed our perception. The name's not even there. But in that room, at this time, they're all blown away. No way. <laughs> Absolutely no way. And yet may this be a warning, a call to us, that the knowledge of being part of a disciple should never lead us to this false sense of security that I'm in. That being part of a church should never lead us to a false sense of security that, oh, I'm okay. I'm in a life group. I'm going to church. He's one of the 12. He's at the table. He's got the best teacher, Lord, example in all the earth. And yet there's something in the brokenness of both you and I. We need more than the greatest example and we need more than the greatest teacher. Judas had the greatest example and the greatest teacher. We need a heart of brokenness and surrender. We need a heart of being washed clean. I don't need more knowledge. I don't need better teaching. I don't need verse by verse through the book of John that's taken us a good part of the year and is gonna finish this one out. What I need is to take what I know and I put it into practice. What I need is surrender. And Judas has got his own plan. I love the way Frederick Bruner writes on this. Again, one of the many voices using for this text and this study. He said, Judas is a reminder 
that every day is judgment day and that on any given day, some faithful follower like Judas or like you or like me might turn tail on the light of Christ and stumble out into the darkness, caught up in the evil or caught up by evil's prince. You see, in the Christian faith, there should be on the Christian's conscience both a deep-seated sense of spiritual security, as Jesus taught Peter in the foot washing, you don't need a bath, I've already made you clean, that deep sense of, Peter, you're already with me, but it also to carry with us an alert sense of spiritual insecurity, as taught by all four of the gospel's teaching of Judas, and especially by this chapter's depiction of Judas. All Christians have both a Peter and a Judas within them, and they need their Lord's constant help to avoid falling into either sin, as they are frequently, to avoid falling into either's sins as they are frequently depicted in the gospel. There's something to note here, that withdrawing from the communion of the faithful is commonly the first overt act of a backslider and the beginning of turning your back on Christ. I love that we do this online ministry. I love that we have so many of you online that are tracking and learning and going with us. I know there's many reasons for that. Although we do this to try to get you into groups, we do this in hopes that no one watches alone. We do this that you would open up your homes, open up an office building, open up a community center, that you can do this together. First and foremost, we wish, we hope that each of you can find a church in your area to be with other believers. There's something that happens when we're in a community of believers around the table that doesn't happen when you're isolated. We realize for so many of you hearing from me, there's not a Bible teaching church or a church in your area or something you found, then we say, man, gather with someone else. But for those of you that have just because the last three years found it much more easier to watch at home, man, I wanna encourage you. Really think, prayer, consciously, Bring this to the Lord. Do I need to be with other believers? When the enemy can get us separated, when the enemy can get us away from corporate worship, corporate encouragement, corporate togetherness, when we do it out of ease for ourselves, and not because this is the only place I can get plugged in the word, we may be in danger of that falling away from the group and therefore falling away from Christ. See, Judas is gonna immediately get up and he's gonna need to lead the group. His disciples stared at one another in verse 22 at a loss to know which of them he meant. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. And Simon Peter motioned to this disciple and said, ask him, ask him which one he means. So leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, it is the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. Then dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot son of Simon. And as soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. What you are about to do, do quickly, Jesus told him. But no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. Since Judas had charge of the money, some thought Jesus was telling him to buy what was needed for the feast or to give something to the poor. And as soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out and it was night. I love the way this portion ends. As soon as Jesus said, my betrayer comes from this room, they're all stunned. Matthew and Mark, is it I? Is it I? Is they all ask Jesus, is it I? Is it I? Is it I? Jesus doesn't answer the questions. Peter, obviously not sitting to the left or the right or close to Jesus, but probably across that horseshoe U-shaped table on the other side, 
gets a hold of John. John, who simply calls himself one of four different times now, this being the first in this book, the disciple whom Jesus loved, which makes you pause. Didn't Jesus love all the disciples? Of course he did. But John's greatest title, 50 years after this night writing this book, the last of the gospels, the books of Jesus to be written. As an old man now, in a wrinkled, white-haired stage of life, has one title that he holds on to. I'm the beloved. I'm the guy that Jesus loves. John, you're the last of the disciples. You're the only disciple not to be killed. You're the last of the Mohicans, the only one to die of old age. Do you understand the title that gives you? The remaining apostle, the last of the disciples, the one that sat by his right hand at dinner, the first called, the one that saw the transfiguration, the one that was allowed to go into the 12-year-old dead girl's room and watch her raised from the dead, the one that was allowed to go on the mountainside and see Moses and Elijah, the one that was allowed to go in the garden with Peter and James a little further, the favorite disciple, the special, the chosen, the top, three of all the titles John has. This is the one he writes about himself. It simply sitting next to him was the disciple whom Jesus loved. Oh, people, this is our identity. This is where we find why we can love, why we can serve, how we can serve. When my identity is found in any other title, I'm the lead pastor, I'm the teaching pastor, I'm this guy, I'm this dude, I'm this, I'm this, I'm this, I'm this. When our identity is found in what we do, we are always gonna come up short because we are always gonna have to be proving ourselves by doing. When our identity can just be in, I am simply an idiot that Jesus loves. And that changes everything about who I am and everything I have. And that is my relationship with the Almighty God. I am the beloved. And at the end of his life, there is one title that John will write about himself and only one, and he will use it over and over and over and over again. I was the one that he loved. Of course he loved them all, but that's what it means most to me. Peter got my attention from across the table. Ask him who he is, ask him, who's doing it? Oh, Peter wants to throw down somebody in this room. I'll take care of him right now. You know Peter's ready to go. And John leans back up against Jesus because they're reclining at the table. Jesus, who is it? Who are you talking about? And Jesus discloses it to John, not to the rest of the room, probably knowing the rest of the room would kill him. And knowing Go and do it. I know my calling. And if Satan wants to use you to do it, do it quickly. <laughs> it's the one that I give this bread to. And dipping the bread, the host would give a choice morsel of bread dipped and it would show special honor to a guest. Well, doing this, it makes sense. If John was at his right and he would dip and feed Judas, Judas had to be on his left, which is the highest place of honor at the table which would be where your pro-counsel would sit next to you at the table. The place to the right would be your dearest and closest family, either your wife or your eldest son. John has that place. And Judas is sitting at his left. And when he dips and feeds it to Judas, and Judas takes it, Jesus tells him, so what are you gonna do, do quickly? I know what you're about. I've made it public. You know I know, that's why I said, I know each of you, I know exactly who I've called, and this is done so scripture may be fulfilled, that the one who eats with me is gonna betray me. But I'm still in charge of this show. So what you do, you do quickly. And immediately Judas got up and he left the room. Now all the disciples heard is what you do, do quickly. He must not have said it in an angry tone. He didn't do this all blown up. He did it in a way where they thought, oh, he's gotta go pay for the meal. 
or he's got some other charge of the money, maybe something for the poor on this incredible holiday that Jesus has asked him to do. And John's sitting there just bewildered and stunned. Our CFO. There's two life-changing truths we take home from this. Number one is this. When we shut our hearts to Jesus' love and forgiveness, we open it to the devil. This entire night has been Jesus watching Judas' feet, even though he knew not all of you are clean. Judas, I know you're not clean. I know you're not walking with me. There's all kinds of theories on why Judas did this. People have asked me, Chris, do you think Judas will be in heaven? I don't think so. I don't think so because in Acts, it says because Judas betrayed him and went to his own place, which seems to be a destiny without discipleship, without heaven. I don't think so because when Matthew writes this, Matthew says, woe to him who betrays. It's been better if you weren't even born because of what's heading for you. I don't believe this because Jesus says not all of you are clean. Not all of you are washed by me. I don't think Judas is going to be in heaven. I think the entire time he wanted a different Jesus. He wanted a different son of God. John's already given us one hint back in the chapters when the alabaster jar was broken that Judas has been skimming them with money. Judas has been cheating them. In Luke 22, Judas has already arranged with the high priest and the Pharisees. He's already exchanged silver. Wait for a time. I'll tell you when you can get Jesus alone. And this night is going to be it. He's already set everything in motion. And with all of that in motion, Jesus still washes his feet. Jesus still has him at a seat of honor. Jesus still dips, shares communion, relationship with him. I think it's an attempt every part of the way now to call out publicly. I know exactly who I've called. I know exactly what you are about to do. You've got time to repent, 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 and repent. I still love you. I will still serve you. I will still accept you. And when he finally takes that offer of the host position, the host bread that is dipped, the seat of favor and honor, and he's going to swallow that, Jesus goes, now you've given yourself over. You've refused me, refused me, refused me, refused me, refused me. Go. And, And what you're about to do, you do it quickly. This is after Satan enters him which is amazing to understand that Jesus still commands Satan. What you're about to do, you do quickly. There's a lot here about, can we be possessed? Can I just remind you quickly, they didn't have the Holy Spirit in their life at this time. There was no cross. There was no forgiveness. Forgiveness not only cleanses of our sins, but it washes us clean from sin so the Holy Spirit can now dwell. We can be his temple. They didn't have that. Let me also tell you then that Satan doesn't enter someone until he's asked, until there's emotion, until there's something already set in motion. And as we've seen all the way back from chapter 12 to Luke 22 on, Judas has already set this. Judas has given himself to the enemy on this. But there is still this understanding that when we shut our hearts to Jesus' love and forgiveness, we open it to the devil. You're not just walking through life. It's not you. You're not just your own man. You're not just your own woman. We're simply pawns in this incredible spiritual game of good versus evil. And if we're not walking in Jesus' love and forgiveness, we're part of the enemy's camp. I'm sorry. There's no third middle ground in that. And can I remind you, we've said it before, there is no running from God, just acceptance or rejecting of God. There's no such thing as running from God. Some of us go, well, I'm just running from God or I've just turned my back on God in time. There's no, you can't run from God. 
A, he's faster than you. B, he's everywhere. You can run into God no matter which direction you go. There's no running from God. Even in our running from God, we try to use it, tell ourselves it's a relationship with God where I'm just running from God right now as if it's still a relationship. You're not running from God. You're rejecting him. You're rejecting him. There's no distance. Is it I've accepted or I've rejected. So if you're in a place right now where you oh, I feel like I'm backsliding, I feel like I'm just running from God, can I just give you the bad news and hope that it convicts and breaks you? You're not running from God. You're rejecting Him. See, when we reject the work of God in our life, we're doing the work of the devil. You say, I'm, I'm a tool of Satan? Yeah, simply because you're not doing what God has created you to do. You're a non-entity in the kingdom of God and therefore you're not being used by God. When we take ourselves and we shut ourselves to the work of God, we open ourselves to the work of Satan. This is exactly where Judas is, given every chance to, I love you, I know you, I will wash your feet, I will serve you, I will give you a seat of honor, I will give you a gesture of honor and you reject, 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 reject and he goes, then just go and do what you want to do. Go. And he dismisses himself from the rest of the disciples. Huh. It's this second life-changing truth that we've seen. I just want to put it together for you. If I belong to Jesus, however, then when all hell is breaking loose in my life, my God is still in charge of and working in my life. Oh, this was a long sentence. I hardly ever have three lines of fill in the blank. I just didn't know how to do it better. Came back from vacation, jumped into this text, got all passionate about it, then realized I got to do some fill in the blanks. Haven't done it well. If I belong to Jesus, if I belong to Jesus, circle, highlight, underline, if I belong to Jesus, then circle, highlight, underline. When all hell is breaking loose in my life, my God is still in charge of and working in my life. You say, Chris, how can you say that? That's what this chapter's about. You know, Chris, where's all hell breaking loose? Oh my gosh, for the disciples, this is the end of the world. For the disciples, your king, your God, your son of God that you left everything to follow for three years is about to be crucified the next day. Dead, dead, hung on a cross and then put in a tomb. Show's over. How did it happen? Your CFO did it. One of the 12 did it. Oh, the game is up. This thing is beyond broken. This thing is gonna leave you in utter disbelief. This thing is gonna shatter all of your hopes, all of your dreams, all you thought about your life and all that you thought you believed in is just about to come smashing down in a 48 hour period. The betrayer's in the room, Jesus is dead and buried. It is over and this is why he's laying it out. All hell is about to break loose. In fact, hell is about to celebrate the next 72 hours. I'm telling you this ahead of time so that you will be convinced of who I am. I'm telling you this ahead of time so that you will know it is simply scripture coming true. I am telling you, whoever accepts you accepts me and whoever accepts me accepts God. And I am also warning one of you in the room, if you reject me, you're rejecting God. Buddy, you're down to your last straw here. You're down to your last straw. I'm telling you all this because right now it seems like your life is over and there is no way out. See, we forget because of 2,000 years of history. We forget because we have the text. We forget because three pages from now we have the end of the story. We forget that night what was happening. This is Jesus' way of saying, everything in your life is about to come unglued. And I want you to know, I'm calling the shots. 
It doesn't surprise me who it is. It doesn't surprise me what they're doing. It doesn't surprise me how they're doing it. Three times on the way to the city, I said I was gonna be handed over and I said I was gonna be crucified. I set two of you to go to the city gate and look for the water jar just to find this room. I am calling the shots on a night that hell itself is gonna celebrate. I'm the one doing this. In fact, what you have to do, you go and you do it quickly. I am ready for this. You know why? Because the rug's about to be pulled out from under you. And I want you to know you have a God that is not shocked, is not surprised by what's going on in your life. Oh, Christian, I have no idea the circumstances that are flooding over you right now. All I know is from the prayer requests that we get, from the communication cards that we get, it is overwhelming what is happening financially right now, relationally right now, what's happening right now in marriage and in singleness right now, what's going on at the home right now, at the work right now. And so many of those are hitting all of you at once. And it seems like God is dead and he's buried in the tomb somewhere. You know why? Because you don't have 2,000 years of history from this day. You don't have a written record of what is going on. You and I are just living our hell breaking loose. And I got to encourage you with what he encouraged the boys. Scripture is being fulfilled. It will not ever, ever come up unfulfilled. The plan of God, the work of God, that who receives me receives God is still at play and it is not being thwarted. I know who it is and how it's going to happen. And what seems like death and catastrophe and the greatest oppression of your life. One verse, but it's for next week. When Judas was gone, Jesus said, now is the son of man glorified and God is glorified in him. And if God is glorified in him, then we'll glorify the son in himself and we'll glorify him at once. Guys, what seems like all hell is breaking loose. I tell you, it's gonna bring glory, 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 glory. Because you have a God that is in charge and still at work. But you and I can't see it because I don't have 2,000 years of history from this week to show me what it was about. I don't have a written text and transcript of, of what it was about. And Jesus wanted to make sure that night in that room, scripture is being fulfilled. The plan of God and who accepts me and who accepts you is not gonna be stopped. I know who it is and what they're about and what they're doing. In fact, I order them to do it quickly. I'm doing this so that you will look back and know that I am God. And this is going to bring the outcome, glory, 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 and glory. Wow, what a story. What a beginning of this night. And holy cow, what Jesus is about to rattle off in these next four pages of red letters. So they and you and I are prepared for the events of the rest of our life are the famous last words that we got to keep coming back to. I just, I just wonder as we close this. Some of you are like, man, I'm a follower. I'm a disciple. And then I'm going to ask, which one? John or Judas? They were both followers. They were both disciples. Are you leaning into Jesus? And the craziness of life and the most bizarre, earth-shattering statements and moments where it seems like all hell is breaking loose? Or are you leaning away? Are you leaning into the community of believers or are you on the outside of community of believers? So the easiest of waves or winds are going to sweep you away because there's no one help tethering you down and holding you down. Or are you just one of those right now saying, well, I'm just kind of running from God. I'm going to walk from God for a while. No, you're not doing anything with God. You've rejected him. You've rejected him. You're on a running with 
and a walk with Satan right now. And I try to say that in the most loving way to get you a wake-up call to say, maybe today's the day you stop. Maybe today's the day you come back to this incredible cross of Jesus going, I know who you are, I know who I've called, and I know what you're about, and I will still love you, love you, love you, forgive you, forgive you, forgive you, and give you a place of honor. And I will show you honor. But the choice has got to be yours. We lean in like John, or are we leaning away like Judas? For those of you that are on the outside of that today, and you go, man, today I just want to say a prayer and give my heart, my life, even my chaos right now to this God. Can you just do that as we close? Can you just say this prayer? Can you just say, God, thanks for letting me hear this today. You know what is going on in my life. You know what I'm doing in my life. And God, I am sorry for leaning away from you, for doing this my way. Today, I give you all of me and everything I have because I know that that cross ultimately brings glory, that you will die to pay for any wrongs I've done, any sin. And today, I ask you to forgive me because of that payment. And because you will rise again, I ask you to give me the Holy Spirit that you will walk with me, teach me how to serve others and teach me how to love others in serving so I can become more like you and more of your spirit in my life, in my marriage, in my singleness, in my family, in my workplace. God, today I give you all of me. All of me. I'm tired of leaning on my own. Today I'm leaning into you. Thanks for that love and forgiveness for taking someone like me. You know, if, if you just said that prayer, especially if you said that prayer for the first time, can you just text the word Jesus to the number right now at the bottom of the screen? Just text the word Jesus. That's it. That's it. We're not going to bombard you with stuff. We're not going to come by your house and knock on the door. We just want to send you some information that goes, man, if you really want to follow Christ, here's some tools. Here's some stuff. Here's some literature. Here's some things we've put together to help you walk and be with God. Father, may the rest of us in the midst of maybe a life of incredible joy, may we lean more into you and serve those around us to even have more of you in our life. But God, for those of us especially, where all hell is breaking loose and it seems like you are gone and dead, may we hold on to the truths you gave your followers then. Your word is still active and alive. Your plan, God, is still active and alive and you are still in control. God, we have a choice today to lean away from you or to lean into you. May we lean more into you than ever before and hold on to you with both hands of hope and promise and ask you, God, to become more real, more tangible in our life as we lean in to you and the serving life you've asked us to live. In Jesus' name, amen. What an amazing message as we took a look at the detail and the application that we can pull from the upper room. If you decided to make that decision to follow Christ today and said that prayer with Chris, we encourage you, text in the keyword Jesus to 844-921-0220. That's the keyword Jesus to 844-921-0220. We would love to be able to send you some resources to be able to help you in your journey of faith. Thank you so much for joining us, and we look forward to having you back next week.